Welcome. This is Michael Volkoff, and this is episode 23 of Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Today, we're excited to have Tom Fox return to review FCPA issues in 2017. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining me today on Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, a podcast focused on the legal and compliance industry. In today's episode, I'm excited to welcome back Tom Fox for a discussion on FCPA enforcement and compliance trends in 2017. Welcome, Tom. Glad to have you back here. Mike, it's uh, really my pleasure and my, indeed my honor to be back with you on your podcast. So I thought we'd take a look today at um, sort of some of the trends and important issues from 2017 in the FCPA uh, enforcement space. What, When you look back on the year, uh, Tom, what are some of the important issues that you've sort of identified or have seen? So, Mike, I guess the theme I saw in 2017, and I have to credit uh, James Kukios, uh, partner in Morrison and Forster, for this specific observation. He characterized it as a year of clarification and consolidation. And I think that really, for me, uh, uh, articulates or synthesizes what we saw in 2017. The uh, new administration came in, um, and we didn't see a lot of changes uh, in the day-to-day work of the FCPA, we saw uh, early on in the year not a lot of enforcement actions, which I think was the uh, the part where they were consolidating. And really, you know, a new administration comes in, it makes sense. They obviously have to get their people in place. They have to decide their priorities. And then they have to, to move that information down throughout the um, uh, Department of Justice prosecutorial bank. And then we saw, and really the second half, a clarification. And the clarification came from earlier statements by people as high up as Attorney General Sessions, uh, Ken Blanco, and um, uh, uh, Trevor McFadden when he was uh, at the DOJ. And leading up to the November 2017 announcement of the new FCPA corporate enforcement policy, which I thought really consolidated several strains of thought uh, that we'd heard from the Department of Justice literally uh, since about uh, the Yates memo, really, in 2015, but putting it into the U.S. Attorney's Manual. So uh, I guess those were kind of the two big themes I saw. Uh, we certainly saw some major FCPA enforcement actions and the continuation of the internationalization of not simply anti-corruption investigations, but indeed anti-corruption enforcements. You know, um, uh, all of those are, I, I agree completely with those, those points. And then to me, what I think is really interesting this year is that we saw the results of the Yates Memorandum for the first time in FCPA enforcement. Uh, what did you think of that? You know, you're absolutely right. And you and I have had the chance to visit about that uh, really throughout the year. And it turns out that behind the scenes, the Yates memo was having a big effect, and uh, it started really in 2016. We didn't even know that because uh, one of the Rolls-Royce defendants actually pled out in 2016, but his uh, plea was kept silent or kept sealed until the uh, others were released. But we had Rolls-Royce, we had Tilia, uh, we had uh, Keppel Offshore, and of course we had FC, uh, excuse me, SBM. 
So lots of individual prosecutions and showing once again, uh, even when a major policy announcement is made uh, by the Department of Justice, such as the Yates memo, it really takes some time for it to percolate down to the prosecutors, them to find the cases, work the cases up, and get either a plea deal or, or go to trial. So that was certainly a, a, a follow-on to the Yates memo that uh, I, I wouldn't say exploded this year, but certainly got everyone's attention in terms of the uh, individual prosecutions. And if I could take that point one step further, it was individual prose- prosecutions of literally CEOs which uh, we typically had not seen previously under the FCPA. So it would appear that the the forlorn Yates memo, often criticized, often laughed at from uh, September 2015, really bore fruit in 2017. And, you know, uh, I mean, this is just an aside from FCPA enforcement, but we also saw individuals prosecuted in two significant auto safety cases. And I attribute that to the Yates memorandum. Uh, in the Takata case, uh, in the airbag case, and also in the um, VW case, we had six individuals prosecuted or indicted. And uh, so I think the Yates Memorandum is actually, like you said, Tom, it takes time for it to filter down and have an impact, but it's absolutely having an impact, in my view. Um, And I don't think it's going to get altered by this administration. I think it's here to stay. And uh, I think it's going to have impact even in the next year of FCPA enforcement, as well as other criminal prosecutions by the uh, Department of Justice. So and I think it's a bit I think it's a big deal. So but let's let's go back. You mentioned one thing uh, and one of the themes of yours was sort of this transition. And you and I and other people on Everything Compliance, you know, our other podcasts that we we do together, um, you know, we're talking about was the Trump administration uh, going to enforce this law or were they going to follow Trump's statement that it was, I guess, one of the most, the you know, most stupidest law, you know, in the books. Um, and I think we got an answer to that. And but I think during that quiet period, people were concerned about that. Um, but what do you think in terms of that? So you're absolutely spot on, Mike, that uh, we've seen the Department of Justice continue prosecution. But what really struck me was uh, early on in the administration, and and remember the administration doesn't come in until uh, late January of uh, 2017. So almost within two months, Attorney General Jeff Sessions spoke to the ECI annual conference, and he made clear his priority. It wasn't one of his underlings saying this is the Attorney General's priority. He came uh, to the ECI annual conference and made clear that there would be rigorous and vigorous enforcement of the FCPA when there was a violation, that compliance, he personally and the Department of Justice viewed compliance officers as part of the solution and really as part of the Department of Justice's efforts to uh, enforce the FCPA and to communicate uh, a deterrence factor uh, for companies who uh, met the requirements of the then operating pilot program. So, Pretty early on, Jeff Sessions, I thought, made a, a very powerful statement. Now, certainly Trevor McFadden had said that in February, very early on. Ken Blanco said that a couple of times as well. So I thought we had consistent statements by literally the top political appointees that the fight against corruption was important to this administration, and they would continue to prosecute it vigorously. 
And, you know, one of the and, and, and I think those statements are absolutely important, but I think maybe part of the slowdown in the beginning and the transition uh, and I, is that uh, the criminal division chief or the head of the criminal division has not been confirmed yet, Brian Benchkowski. And, um, you know, usually the criminal division chief has to sort of navigate uh, to the uh, through the upper reaches of the Justice Department, a big settlement. And, you know, Ken Blanco filled in, you know, magnificently in that role. But I think, you know, it's easier when you have a political appointee there to sort of push through things. And that it may, you know, because it may be some of the reason for the slowdown during the period um, as well. But what what's interesting to me, though, Tom, is then when these cases started coming out, uh, and we started to see the enforcement actions. I mean, we had, and I think you've you've noted this before, but we had four pretty big, significant cases this year. Um, that being, te- uh, I don't know how you pronounce it, but uh, Telia, Rolls Royce, which I guess was in January, right? And Kepler right. Offshore and SBM Offshore. I mean, we're talking about four pretty significant prosecutions that must have been sort of in the pipeline when this administration came in, but they didn't seem to, you know, uh, back down from these cases at all. Uh, Mike, you're right. So let's leave Rolls-Royce out because that was settled under the prior administration. But Telia in September with uh, $695 million split between the United States and Sweden. Keppel with $421 million split between the United States and Singapore. And SBM, uh, although only, I should say only, huh. $238 million in uh, fines and penalties under the FCPA. The, the clear, or, or, or rather the key is that in 2015, SBM had settled with Dutch prosecutors for $240 million. So we have a total of $478 million on SBM. Both are all three of those, Telia, Keppel, and SBM. And if now we can add in Rolls-Royce, they all had high-level individual prosecutions as well, which I think we can only uh, attribute to the the Yates memo and SBM uh, the Department of Justice had declined to prosecute back in 2015 when they settled with the Dutch prosecutors, but only with additional information did they reopen the case and uh, come to this uh, second settlement where they had the, uh, uh, I think, the prosecution of the uh, business unit president uh, for SBM offshore as well. So uh, the fruits of the Yates memo certainly uh, bore out. Uh, but also we had these these very large cases that certainly the Department of Justice was not uh, backing off on. But, you know, Mike, there's one other point that I'd like to throw in that I think had an effect, but I don't I can't quantify it. And that's the pilot program. The mm-hmm. pilot F- FCPA pilot program went into uh, force in April of 2016. It was by design a one year pilot program. And at the end of that year, I think it was Kim Blanco, but it may have been Trevor McFadden announced uh, the pilot program was under review. It would continue while it was under review. Well, that review turned into the new FCPA corporate enforcement action, which incorporated specific parts of the pilot program uh, that were first articulated in the pilot program, particularly around a best practices compliance program. Also, of course, it incorporated the uh, discounts for cooperation and remediation and self-disclosure and added the new component of a presumption of a declination if you met the full requirements. But I think there was a a time period where the Department of Justice was assessing 
the results of the pilot program, perhaps seeking um, comment from others about whether it should be expanded or retracted. Uh, I think uh, at least the Department of Justice made the decision that we're going to expand it into the new FCPA corporate enforcement program. So I think that also played a part in it because sort of their major initiative from 2016 expired early on in the new administration, the new administration. the new Department of Justice administration uh, had to decide uh, what they were going to do with this pilot program. So my sense is that also played a part into it. You know, the, uh, that's a really good point, because I know when they're just speaking from experience at DOJ, I was there when the McNulty memo was done. And there's so much effort and so many constituencies that have to be heard from that it, it sort of puts a, a halt to some of the enforcement work in the higher levels, you know, reviews and approvals. And I think that they were that was probably their first priority, don't you think, to sort of take a look at the pilot program and decide what are we going to do with this? And, you know, you have to meet with all of law enforcement. You have to bring in all the, you know, all the other companies uh, or constituencies. And who knows, there may have been even some international consultation with some of their partners where they're particularly close, like Brazil, the UK, uh, and some of the other co- countries. So that you're right. That could have taken a lot of time and a lot of effort. And that may be some of the explanation for that, you know, transition lull, uh, as we call it. But going back to, uh, you know, these cases, uh, the, the, and, and I agree with you on the Rolls Royce that was done uh, at the end of the Obama administration. But like, for example, and I don't know how you pronounce it, you said it's Telia or whatever, but um, uh, that case, what was interesting to me about that case is uh, the Swedish prosecutors were prosec- ended up prosecuting the CEO and two high-level executives. But one thing they did in remediation in that case, uh, what I was intrigued by, is that they replaced the whole senior executive team and the whole board. And as a result of that, to me, it was a weird case where you didn't have a corporate monitor, if anybody should have had a corporate monitor, because it was just like the Vimplecom case and the scenario in the Vimplecom case from the year before. But I think because they cleared out everybody who could even tangentially have been involved, that the government, the DOJ came in and said, okay, we're going to take that as an extraordinary sort of remediation step and not end up uh, putting a corporate monitor. That was... Uh, I mean, it's a gigantic case of 965 million and some, you know, depending on how you calculate these things or how you credit them, it now is like number one on the list of all time FCPA cases. So it's certainly number one on my list. Uh, And uh, those are uh, really interesting observations. But Mike, can I take maybe go the complete opposite way and talk about two cases that almost slid under the radar yeah. But presaged, I think, where we got to at the end of the year, and that's the two declinations with disgorgement we saw. Right. I think in June, the Lindy Gas case and the CDM Smith case, uh, both of those companies got uh, full declinations. Now, they did have to disgorge um, – excuse me, um, uh, CDM got a full uh, declination. Uh, Lindy Gass had to pay a fine and penalty. But uh, sort of sitting in the middle of this time frame, we had these two very interesting cases where uh, we didn't quite understand the rationale behind, certainly in CDM Smith, getting a full 
pass or what we thought was a full pass in the form of a declination while paying uh, disgorgement. Well, it turns out, like I said, that they really both cases, I think, presaged the um, the new FCPA corporate enforcement policy. And I don't know whether the DOJ was floating it out there to see how it went or internally they they wanted to have that discussion and an example. But it clearly now uh, uh, points to where we got at the end of the year. And I think many of us in the compliance community viewed these two cases as even though they were relatively small, uh, relatively insignificant uh, in the scope of some of the larger cases, as very important cases to where we got at the end of the year. Yeah, I think it's set important precedent, even going back to 2016, when the declinations or, you know, the pilot program uh, um, approvals that occurred in 2016. But these two, um, I think, looked more like the refinement with the profit disgorgement, uh, which has also appeared in the um, co- new corporate enforcement policy. So I agree with you. And as a matter of fact, Tom, I remember early on in the year, you and I did a podcast w- uh, together uh, just examining these two cases because they were so interesting um, and, 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 and the precedent that they set. One, uh, I, I wanted to go back now to or, or mention another sort of theme that uh, I think is really important, and I know you do as well, is um, the participation of the C-suite in a number of these major enforcement actions. In the SBM offshore case, I mean, I think the facts are amazing that you had one CEO hand off to another CEO, and they both maintained a list of bribes, projects, who was responsible for what on a spreadsheet or on a document of some sort. They kept it in their safe in their office. And the only person who knew about it was the CEOs, other than those two CEOs, was the administrative assistant. And the way that they eventually broke the SBM case uh, is they found that the there was an individual, I think you said, who was like the head of a business unit, which uh, was operating and made payments from uh, California uh, and so that gave them some jurisdiction that they didn't have in the earlier investigation. And then that led to, uh, I'm sure this person cooperated and or somebody else did and led uh, to the CEO um, getting, uh, you know, implicated in this. So we had the Telia case, the SBM offshore, and then there's been a lot written about the lawyer in the Keppel uh, case who uh, ended up pleading guilty and cooperating, and his offense was that he helped draft a third-party contract, um, you know, knowing that the price was inflated to pay certain bribes through the third party. And to me, this is just a really, you know, interesting trend that we have higher-ups involved in all of this, and even, you know, supposedly somebody who's supposed to be a gatekeeper like an attorney all involved in these types of uh, activities. And I, I was, I mean, it's discouraging, but I'm glad to see that they were prosecuted. Yeah, you know, absolutely right. And the other point that leads to or, or, or lends to uh, my point about the greater internationalization of investigations is, and enforcement is we have um, prosecutors outside the United States also pursuing C-suite so the uh, 
CEO at Telia at the relevant time is being prosecuted, has been indicted by Swiss prosecutors. We have in Italy, separate and apart from all the cases we've talked about, Italian prosecutors going after the current and former CEOs of uh, E&I. And we also have uh, Dutch prosecutors involved. We have in the Keppel offshore case, Singapore has announced they're going after the uh, senior executives. So the countries where... uh, these people are, are, are located in are, I think, moving aggressively to prosecute C-suite uh, level, even if they are not subject to jurisdiction here in the United States. Yeah, and, and also the Serious Fraud Office, Tom, I think is prosecuting a number of individuals from the Rolls-Royce case, and they're more than happy to do that. So I think in some cases, DOJ you know, is coordinating in that they're taking certain individuals that maybe have more of a U.S. link and and deferring to prosecutors in other jurisdictions where they have a you know strong working relationship, which I think right. is continue. So, well, as our last topic, I wanted to, uh, in terms of this year in review, is uh, the corporate enforcement policy uh, that was adopted and came out. And uh, we don't have a Rosenstein memo. Um, what we did is Rod Rosenstein, the, the deputy attorney general, uh, announced the policy but made just uh, 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 amendments to directly to the U.S. attorney's manual, which usually is like the second step after there's a policy memorandum uh, you know, issued. And uh, uh, knowing Rod Rosenstein, he's not sort of an egotistical person. So I think he sort of wanted to say, look, let's just put this in the, in the book and abide by it. Um, the one, uh, just as a headline in my view, I think that this is such a good or such an effective way to do this, and the policy that they adopted basically defeats all the arguments that people had for you know, some kind of leniency program beyond what is in here or the uh, compliance defense case. I think all of this has basically been ended with a very thorough and, you know, great presentation. I think we may see, you know, in the years to come, maybe some updating of some of the remediation elements for compliance programs. But, you know, now what, to me, what this did is uh, is really sort of close the book on a lot of the political discussions that have occurred. But anyway, so... Your reaction to it, Tom, and, and, and what you thought about it? So uh, you did a podcast, uh, Mike, where you talked about the prosecutorial aspects, the discounts, the presumption of, of uh, declination. And so I won't reiterate that because I thought you did a much better job as a former prosecutor than I ever could. I absolutely agree with your assessment that this uh, once and for all has ended the uh, discussion around a compliance defense, the uh, DOJ completely eviscerated both the intellectual underpinnings and the practical reality when they uh, made a declination, the presumption, if you meet the standards. So uh, hopefully that debate, that useless debate will end. But the thing that I'd like to focus on, because I tend to focus on the uh, nuts and bolts of best practices, compliance programs, are the things that I saw the new FCPA corporate enforcement policy add to compliance programs, compliance practitioners, and to the role of the CCO. Before I get there, though, I would I would just 
bring us forward a little bit to 2018, Mike, because I think we saw perhaps another reason that this became a part of the attorney's manual as opposed to something along the lines of uh, the Rosenstein memo, because yesterday uh, Attorney General Sessions uh, pronounced that there would be no longer guidance given by uh, the Department of Justice. Now, this was not guidance directed by uh, from FCPA attorneys or his remarks were not directed at the FCPA unit. It was a DOJ wide. So I wonder, query, I would ask, did Rosenstein put this in the attorney's manual to uh, get around that little um, uh, announcement that was coming? Because if it's in the attorney's manual, it's in the attorney's manual. It's not yeah. guidance. It's what the uh, attorneys, uh, uh, the DOJ prosecutors follow. So I thought that was also interesting that maybe there was uh, that other uh, reason. But there were a couple of things. The first is that the compliance function in a corporation was significantly uh, made more important. And the role of the CCO specifically, where uh, the CCO was designed to or required to have both authority and independence, talked about compensation and promotion of the personnel in the compliance function, the expertise of uh, persons in the compliance function, the compliance expertise that should be on a board of directors. And interesting, there was an ACI conference here in Houston this week where the uh, Department of Justice representative said that was not simply having a resource available to the board, that was having compliance expertise on the board. So I think the DOJ has made clear they expect to see someone uh, with a lot of compliance experience on the board, which would certainly be a welcome addition. Also, the reporting structure of uh, the compliance function up. They uh, also uh, incorporated some uh, key additions uh, from both the 2016 pilot program and the 2017 evaluation of corporate compliance programs, including a requirement for a root cause analysis to be performed for any case that involves an FCPA violation, not uh, expanding the discussion of tone at the top to the leadership's conduct. How do they conduct themselves? The uh, discussion, uh, submitting of the discussion started in the evaluation of the effectiveness of your training, not simply that you put training on, and to reiterate, the CCO and compliance function, pay status and authority within a corporation. So all welcome additions, I think, that are going to make uh, uh, doing compliance or operationalizing compliance much more important now going forward. Yeah, and I think those those are important trends that you, you've noted uh, because I don't think there was as much attention paid to that and I do think that the, you know, the department has been, you know, at the forefront of pushing companies on compliance. And I think they're, the way you've outlined it, I would say, don't you agree that they're sort of pushing people to take it to the next level in a way? No, I would, I would agree with you, except I would drop the phrase in a way. I think they're absolutely doing that. And if, but if you think about it, Mike, just think about our experience where uh, we've both been in this profession for nearly 10 years now, or this part of our career for nearly 10 years, and we've seen compliance programs evolve, but we've seen the Department of Justice evolve, not only in its sophistication of understanding uh, what a best practice compliance program is, but also its understanding. So as someone like yourself would go in front of the Department of Justice and present a case for a reduction in uh, uh, fine or penalty, 
based upon a cutting edge best practice that, you know, the DOJ lawyers take that away and they take that to the next <clears throat> um, enforcement action. And now that becomes a part of their commentary and what they've talked about over the last few years on the speaking circuit. And now it's it's formalized in the uh, U.S. Attorney's Manual. So it's it's a natural evolution. Uh, the department is becoming much more sophisticated. And if you take the comments of George Terwilliger after the release of the new FCPA corporate enforcement policy that this document puts corporations, compliance uh, professionals, and the DOJ really as partners to fight the global scourge of corruption. Uh, I certainly think that's where the Department of Justice would like to take uh, its enforcement and its deterrence to, to drive it down throughout uh, the world. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that, uh, Tom. Well, we're almost out of time, but I wanted to uh, at least get your thoughts on what do you see in 2018? And uh, do you see any big cases uh, coming to an end as well? But in terms of trends, what, what, do, you, what do you think the headlines are going to be from 2018? So, well, we have to say that uh, we would expect the biggest case to settle, uh, and that would be Walmart. Uh, now, does not mean it will be the largest fine uh, or penalty ever. It may be significantly smaller. But when I say biggest, I mean probably the one that had the most splash uh, simply because the New York Times broke the story on the front page on a Sunday edition back in April 2012. But also uh, Walmart's response, Mike, I think has been just outstanding in terms of certainly the amount they spent on their investigation, but equally the amount they spent to create a gold standard best practices compliance program literally across the globe. And so when I say biggest, I mean it's it's certainly the, the largest, the most impactful, and the one that's, I think, done one of the uh, one of the most uh, public cases to put forward why you should be operationalizing your compliance program. So uh, I think we probably both expected that to settle in 2017, but it didn't. So I would expect it would settle in 2018, although our friend Matt Kelly has quit holding his breath. Um, <laughs> internationally, I think we're going to see some very interesting developments. We had in 2017, the third and fourth DPAs in the United Kingdom under the Bribery Act. I think we'll see more DPAs in the United Kingdom. Uh, Director Green has announced they're looking actively for cases to create DPAs. We've got the new French law, Sapondu. We've got uh, Peru and Argentina both have new anti-bribery, anti-corruption laws. And uh, I think anybody doing business in South Africa better wake up and get hold of their compliance program now because, frankly, I think uh, all heck is about to break loose in South Africa in terms of corruption investigations, corruption focus. Uh, they may remove the current president because of corruption. Anyone who do has done business in South Africa needs to get down there and assess where you are. And if you think you have a problem, uh, call Mike Volkoff first. But <laughs> second, have a very serious discussion about getting into the Department of Justice to self-disclose because Eric Holder, uh, of all people, said that uh, when asked specifically about South Africa, he obliquely said, well, it wouldn't surprise me if the Department of Justice was actively investigating cases. We have three major uh, companies, uh, KPMG, the um, uh, excuse me, McKinsey and Co. and SAP uh, have either 
announced investigations or announced publicly uh, problems with their South African operations around bribery and corruption. So I think that's going to be a huge hotspot for U.S. companies. Mm. Well, Tom, that's great. Thank you for your your time today. Uh, this has been fascinating as always. And um, I appreciate uh, sort of your wisdom. And uh, if people want to get in touch with you, I know that your your blog is very popular, but if they want to get in touch with you, how should they uh, directly call you or, or email you? So you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You should also check out my uh, website, the FCPA Compliance and Ethics Report, which is at www.fcpacompliancereport.com. And, uh, Mike, if I could put in a plug for uh, my upcoming book, which is the Complete Compliance Handbook. It will be published in April 2018 by Compliance Week. It's a compendium of uh, what I think are best practices, uh, current best practices, and it incorporates the both the uh, 2017 evaluation of corporate compliance programs and the uh, new FCPA corporate enforcement policy into my best practices discussion. One last plug for you, Tom, is uh, I know you and Jonathan Marks have been uh, you had a seminar uh, in New York, and I, I see you're scheduled in Miami, given how warm it is down there these days. But uh, when, when is that, and how can people uh, get involved if they want to attend that? Sure. So uh, thanks, Mike. Uh, Jonathan Marks, a partner at Markham LLP, and I, uh, are, are I'm partnering with Markham and Jonathan this year to put on a series of doing compliance masterclass in compliance uh, training sessions. They're two-day events. The uh, next one is February 12th and 13th in Miami. You can find out more information on my website in terms of the agenda and uh, registration. So if you're in South Florida, I hope you can uh, join us. It's going to be a great two days. We keep the class size uh, down to 10 people, so it's a true master class, and I hope you can join us. All righty, Tom. Thank you again uh, and appreciate it. And uh, we'll stay in touch. And if you do, please make sure you contact Tom if you need any help. And don't forget about his uh, well-regarded podcast network that he operates. Okay, Tom, thank you and have a great weekend. Thanks, Mike. Thanks again for listening to Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Please subscribe to the podcast series. The Volkoff Law Group believes that every company should have a robust ethics and compliance program. Experience and research show that ethical companies are better performers in the global marketplace. At ethical companies, employees believe in the company, they feel vested, and are more productive. As a result, misconduct rates are much lower and financial performance is higher. We can help you achieve these benefits through an effective ethics and compliance program. You can learn more about our commitment to effective ethics and compliance programs at our website, www.volkofflaw.com, our award-winning blog, Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, and our new podcast series. You can contact me at my email address, mvolkoff at volkofflaw.com. Let us know how we can help you achieve your goals.